0: All right, hey, good morning, Mercy Church. How we doing? Good. Hey, um, next week, I know you know this. Next week is Easter weekend. Um, We are pretty excited about Easter weekend around here. Um, You you know, it's a full weekend for us, uh, which I'm really excited about because, especially Good Friday, we get both of our locations together here at our. Providence Road location, and we're going to be worshiping together uh, for Good Friday, a couple of services there. And then Saturday, we're all together for this egg hunt, which is our first time trying this thing out, which I think is going to be a lot of fun, maybe a little chaotic, but I hope you're, hope you're there to join us for that. And then, of course, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, where we are celebrating the resurrection of Christ together. Y'all, I'm so excited about it. And I just want to remind you um, that there is still plenty of time to invite people to come and join us for Easter weekend. It's one of those natural times where people actually come to church around here and we wanna take advantage of that. Uh, So if you haven't gotten one yet, we've still got a handful of these Easter squares that you can invite folks uh, to come and join us for church. Listen, just uh, the other day, after what was a really great time of prayer that we had together as a church on a Tuesday night, um, uh, we were sitting out at Breaking Fast at Chili's, and uh, we're sitting there, we're talking to our server, and I just asked her, I said, hey, do you have anywhere to go to church for Easter? And she said, no, I don't. I said, well, you should come and join us over at Mercy Church. I handed her one of these squares. We prayed for her because you've got three pastors. Of course, we're going to spend some time praying for her, but it's actually something you can do as well with your servers. But I just say, blanket uh, the whole place, the whole community with these Easter squares. There are so many people that are one invite away uh, from coming and hearing the gospel. And who knows what the Lord might do through that, right. right? Y'all, I am praying expectantly for Easter. And I hope you'll join me in that, like expecting God to move, right? Not just to see people. We wanna see people come from death to life, Uh, That's what what we're hoping for. We want to see a whole host of people that are kind of fringe uh, connected to Christianity, right? They'll come on maybe Christmas and Easter. We want to see them connect to the body of Christ. That's why I've been praying so much for them, right? Because of the hope of the gospel that we have that we know that we want other people to have as well. All right, that's Easter coming next weekend. Um, I want to jump over to um, this weekend. Uh, This weekend, we're finishing our series uh, that we're walking through what it means to walk in the way of Jesus. So if you got your Bible, Luke 15, Luke 15, that's what we're going to be today, and as you're turning over there, I want to share with you just a a story that that I experienced a handful of years ago that really shaped the way I view what we're going to talk about this morning. I was in seminary, um, and I was invited when I went into seminary into an internship at the church that I was serving at uh, by a guy named Rick. And Rick was an older guy. He had kids, a couple of kids that were my age, and then two that were much younger. And he just really quickly, Rick became like a spiritual father to me. Um, And I just uh, got to know his family really well. Courtney and I got to know his family really well. Got to know his two younger kids, uh, Mike and Laura, really well, because we kind of, uh, we were serving, Courtney and I were serving in the kids ministry, and we got to kind of watch them sort of grow up uh, as we were serving there. One of the benefits of being at a church a long time. Uh, Well, a few years ago, Rick calls us up um, in a little bit of an alarm up at the office because his car, when he had gotten home from a parent-teacher conference, uh, his car had been stolen out of his driveway. And at the same time, Mike, his now 15-year-old son, was missing. Well, uh, he calls a couple of Mike's friends and puts together that one of uh, of Mike's friends tells him that uh, Mike had been thinking about and contemplating running away which was really out of character for Mike. He wasn't really a rebel. He was a really, he's just what you would characterize as a good kid, pretty chill, not that high strung or anything like that. Um, and so Rick just takes off in his car. He starts going to every um, just gas station exit on the highway, all the way up from Durham, North Carolina, all the way up past the Virginia line. And he's not seeing anything. And he just kind of went because he's like, well, I got to go out there and find him." there, you know, making tons of calls and everything else. Well, um, you know, they don't find him. The next morning, they call the school and they ask the principal, hey, can you just ask anybody who knew Mike, um, do they know anything, right? They're, just, they're, they're pulling shot, you know, their parents, they're, they're hurting, they're panicking a little bit. And one friend happens to say that he had heard Mike talk about going to New York City. Well, on that lead, Rick uh, jumps in the car and takes another one of our pastors, David, and they just take off, from Durham towards Manhattan, because they don 't know uh, they 're just like, all right we 'll just go see and the rest of us are back um, at the office and we 're just praying and, and asking the Lord to, to bring Mike home right Well, they drive all the way up there ten hour drive, whatever it is they get to, um, they get to you know Manhattan, they park their car and they start making their way to Times Square. Now listen, you can imagine. As Rick starts walking towards Times Square, because, just because they're like, I don't know, we'll start there and we'll just say maybe, the, maybe he might be here. You, you know that his son could be anywhere across the eastern seaboard uh, into the Midwest with a day's head start. And even if he was in this quarter mile area, you can imagine Rick walking in knowing how packed, if you've ever been there, how packed Times Square is full of people. You can imagine the sense of like dread and kind of hopelessness and despair This starts to come over Rick as he's walking into into Times Square. And so he and David, they walk in, and they they start to kind of separate and just walk through the crowd. I kid you not, 30 minutes after they arrive in Times Square and start walking through, David um, walks over to the McDonald's right down in Times Square, just thinking, you know, where else would a 15-year-old be, right, than McDonald's in Times Square where they actually can afford to, to eat. So he goes and he looks, and sure enough, there is Mike, Langston sitting at a booth in the McDonald's in Times Square with his Bible on the table, just kind of sitting there, staring off into, the, into space. with well, David David breaks down, he starts crying, goes over, hugs Mike, calls Rick, Rick come, and Rick said uh, he said, the next minute was like a movie scene, right? He's about two blocks away. He just starts darting through traffic, like telling the, the cabs, just hitting him on the hood and you know running and everything, gets into McDonald's sees his son, I mean, just runs breaking down, right? Runs, grabs his son, hugs him, tells him he loves him, he's so glad he's with him, and then he sits him down and he pulls this Bible that Mike has been flipping through and he turns to Luke 15. And he uses Luke 15 to explain to Mike how much he loves him. Because I'm telling you, the chapter that we are in today, Luke 15, It, as much as any other spot in scripture, explains and expresses so vividly the heart of God for his people. And Rick, as he sat there, and he he sat there across from his son, he said, listen, son, I love you. And all that matters, all that matters is that we are together again. And y'all, that as we get in here We get into Luke 15. This is going to be a simple, we're going to spend two weekends, this weekend and Easter weekend in this chapter, because it is rich, it is deep, but there is a simple, clear, beautiful message coming through it, and it's this, God loves his children, and he has come to rescue them. Y'all, this is the message of the gospel. This is the one grand narrative coming through all of scripture. God loves his children, and he has come to rescue them. See, since about the third century, probably earlier, but as we have it on record, this week that we're stepping into today has been called Holy Week for Christians. It's this week where we slow down, where we turn the noise down a little bit in our lives, and we remember. We focus our hearts and minds on what Christ did for us. Historically, the church called today Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Right, because John 9 tells us that as Jesus comes walking into Jerusalem, they start to lay down palm branches across his path, which is something that they did that was reserved for royalty. They're shouting, Hosanna, blessed be the one that comes in the name of the Lord. But they didn't understand what he was coming to do. See, the triumphal entry of Christ on Palm Sunday wasn't to go sit on a throne. It was to go hang on a cross. And that's because mankind didn't just need a ruler. We needed a rescuer. It was out of love that he was walking into Jerusalem, knowing he was walking to his death, but willing because that death was gonna be what saved us. The Bible says this week, Holy Week, it's about God's love for sinners. 1 John four ten it says it really simply. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us that God came after us and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Holy week is about meditating on, remembering that God loves his children and he came to rescue them. That is the why of Easter. And that is the message of Luke 15. A message so simple that a dad can sit down with his runaway son in the middle of Times Square at midnight and clearly articulate the great love of God. And say it simply, this is love, son. God loves his children, and he came to rescue them. And I'm here for you because I love you. And the only thing that matters is that we're together again. I hope, I hope this sermon, I hope our time together today kicks off for you a week of celebrating the love of God that came for you. So we're getting into this, as we get into this passage, listen, the reason we're here with this one is because we're going to get into the deep waters of the gospel. That's why I love it so much. I hope, I'm praying for you. One of my prayers as I've been uh, writing and preparing this message is that you would not just settle for going through the motions of Easter. That you would let your heart, let your, your mind, let your soul drift into the deep waters, the beautiful waters of the gospel and sit in it. We're gonna dive into this passage and I'll explain it as we go, all right? Here's the the setting. Luke 15, we'll start with verses one and two. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, there are two groupings of people that are very different that are situated right here in this scene, okay? And these two groupings of people represent two different worldviews, and those worldviews were there in that moment, and they're still alive and well together, I think represent just about every one of us in here. You gotta understand, okay? You have to understand Jesus's audience if you're gonna understand Luke 15. Everything about Luke 15 hangs on understanding who Jesus is teaching these parables to. If you miss it, if you miss who he's talking to, you're gonna settle for some kind of bland moral reaction to this passage, okay? You gotta understand who he's talking to. All right, so here's the first group. First group is the tax collectors and sinners. Let me talk about the tax collectors for a second. There's really, there's not really a big like um, equivalent for us in our day for this, all right? Uh, Most of us uh, just don't, we don't have anything to fully grab who this person is. The only thing that we have um, from the Bible is Zacchaeus, was a tax collector. And we're like, oh, Zacchaeus, I know him. Uh, If you grew up in church, like he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed to the top of a sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see, right? If you grew up in church, you had that little nursery rhyme, little song to learn about Zacchaeus, and you're like, well, maybe the worst thing about Zacchaeus was that, you know, as a tax collector, maybe you owed $25 um, to the government, but when Zacchaeus came along, he took $30 and he skimmed some for himself, which made him kind of a a bad guy, right? And that's kind of where you settle is that he had just some moral problems, and tax collectors were, were kind of bad people. Listen, it's way, way worse than that. All right, when you dig into who tax collectors were, let, let me explain who these guys were and how they were viewed by the Pharisees and scribes, how they were viewed by the Jewish community, okay? Uh, here's the situation. At the time, Rome has this empire that's as large as it really ever was, going all the way from what would be like England, stretching all the way to India, right? And y'all, this empire was a brutal, horrific Governing empire, okay? It was a dictatorship. You hear about the Pax Romana in your history class. There's a reason why they call it the, the Peace of Rome. It wasn't because everybody was just happy. It's because they're, they were so oppressing every area that they conquered that nobody would dare, dare go up against them, okay? And here's the way they did it. they conquer an area, right? And when they conquered a city, They would take men, women, and children, and they just take them out there and they use them as examples. They would strip them naked and they would crucify them along the main road into that city. So that every time you went into the city, what you would see is all these people hanging there as this big, very vivid reminder, do not mess with Rome. Now they had this all the way across, like the known world. Now how, how in the world are you going to you're going to govern, are you going to make sure that everybody's, that there's no rising up, no rebelling against you, right? Because the Roman army wasn't big enough to occupy all that territory. We're not in the area where you have drones or the age where you have drones that can like fly over and make sure everybody's, you know, staying put and staying under Roman control. What are you going to do? Well, since the Roman army isn't big enough, what they did is they hired mercenaries who were indigenous to the people they were conquering, They hired them and inscripted them into the Roman army, trained them up and turned them into Roman soldiers, even though they were a part of the very people that they were conquering. How are you gonna pay for that? Taxes. Taxes are the way you're gonna pay for that. So a tax collector was a local citizen, in our case, a Jewish citizen in this area, a Jewish citizen who's going to sell his soul to go buy a Roman tax-gathering franchise and then go around and take money to fund the very regime that is killing, murdering, oppressing his own people. There's just no equivalent for that. In our modern day, I mean, I don't know if like the mafia was the legal governing entity and your neighbor Bruno was coming to take all of your money and then go use that to fund the killing of those that you love. Let's just, you gotta understand, these people were not welcome in the synagogue, right? Let's transport ourselves back into the the local area. Uh, These people were not welcome in the synagogue. Their testimony was not welcome, even admitted in court. They were just shunned, right? They were oppressive traitors, and alongside of those tax collectors, you have people that are called sinners. Now, the sinners, they were, they're not like the, hey, well, everybody's a sinner. Like the way we talk about that word, like you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. No, no, no. This was a certain classing grouping of people. Um, you got to know, again, know who this is written, where this was written into. Sinner was a label given to people who were diseased or deformed or who had kind of a sketchy past It's so common of a view that basically what the view was was that clearly they had been judged, they'd been punished by God for whatever sin they had committed. And that's why they're in the state that they're in with whatever disease, deformity, or whatever kind of sketchy profession that they were in. Okay, Uh, So much so, John 9, Jesus and his disciples are walking. The disciples see a blind man on the side of the road and they say, "Um, Jesus, was it this man's sin or his parents' sin that caused them to be blind? I mean, they just assumed that that's what, the, that's what the problem with the sinner was. And Jesus says, well, neither, but so that God may be glorified and he heals him. It's a really awesome scene. But the point is, the general view of the day was that the sinner was the people they thought that God just hated. And God was judging them for their sin by punishing them with whatever lot they had in life. These would be the sick, the prostitutes, the slave traders, the drug dealer, again, the tax collectors. None of these people are allowed near the synagogue. These people, especially the sinners, are taught from day one that they're outcasts, that they had received their judgment from God, and one day when they actually meet God face-to-face, it's gonna be really bad for them. Yet, y'all, here are these tax collectors who have no conscience. You cannot have a conscience in the tax collector game. What are they doing? They're drawing near to Jesus. Here are these sinners who have been told forever that they're not worthy of God, they're drawing near to Jesus. You gotta catch that. That they, And so Jesus is, of course, sitting among them, but they are drawn, as they hear him teach, they're drawn into him. And then, before I get into the Pharisees, let me ask you, any of y'all ever been in a place where it's kind of emotionally, whatever, you just started to maybe embrace a little bit the idea that you must not be one of God's people? Like, you must not be the type of person that God wants. For whatever reason, you just, you're just you not the type of person that God would approve of. So because it didn't seem like, like you look at the people that seem to know God, you look at church people, you're like, I'm not one of them, so I must not be, that must not be for me, God must not be for me. And so you kind of just went hard into your sin because of that. If God's for that type of person, I'm not that type of person, so I'm going to do my sin. And if I'm gonna do my sin, I'm gonna do my sin right. Listen, if that, if that's you, if that has been you in, in your past, maybe that is you now, I gotta tell you, this sermon, this passage, this word from God is for you. It's for you that feel like you have run away from God or that God's not even really a thing for you. This, that's the people that Jesus is speaking to. God's grace is for you. And look at verse two. The Pharisees' scribes are complaining about this man, Welcoming sinners, eating with them. This is our second group. This is the morally upright. This is the religious elites. These are the way I heard one guy describe it: the varsity evangelicals with nine fish on their chariots and only listening to Hebrew music. Right? I mean, these are just the people that are drawn into to, to thinking that uh, the way to say it is they believe their morally upright lives has given them favor with God that just is not going to extend out to others. They actually are looking forward to the judgment of God. Because they think the judgment of God's gonna condemn those tax collectors and sinners. And when God judges them, he's gonna approve of them for all of their morally upright living. And they'll be celebrated. So the Pharisees and scribes are complaining because Jesus is with the wrong group. He's befriending sinners. And so Jesus responds to their grumbling with these parables. And it's gonna show them, here's what's gonna show them, how glad it makes God how glad it makes God when sinners move towards Jesus. Yeah. And they don't really know what to do with it. So there's gonna be three parables to do that. We're covering the first two today and the next one, um, the story of the prodigal son on Easter Sunday. But Listen, this, what both of these parables are gonna to do today, they're gonna to upend both of these worldviews. The worldview that says, I don't deserve God's love and the worldview that says, I do deserve God's love. And Jesus is gonna flip both of them on its head. Let's look at the first parable, verse three. He told them this parable. What man among you has a hundred sheep, loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people that don't need repentance. All right, think about these listeners. Remember, put yourself, who is Jesus talking to? The two groups, those that think they don't deserve God's love, those that think they do. To the tax collectors and sinners who think that since they've wandered away from God, that they are the sheep out in the wilderness now, that God is just gonna forget about them. Maybe that God has forgotten about them God's only going to deal, after all, he's got to deal with the 99, right? And Jesus says, no way, no way. And I love that he says it in this like, of course kind of way, right? Because let's be honest for a second. Um, If if you have 100 sheep and you suffer a 1% loss, are you going to go after the one until you find it? Like there's no end timetable on that, just going after them until you find it? Jesus says, who wouldn't do that? And, and maybe you have this little bit of a thought that I kind of had like, uh, me? <laughs> I don't know that I would do that. Like I got 99 problems and that sheep ain't one, right? Like, so I got stuff that I gotta go after. Uh, we can thank our staff team for giving me that reference right there, okay? I won't tell you which one. Um, but Jesus says, look, Jesus says to the one who wandered away, and you better believe that there are people that were listening to Jesus saying, that's me. That's me, I'm that one. I'm the one who wandered away from God. He's got all those good sheep over there in the pasture, but not me, I'm the one that's gone off. And Jesus totally and completely deconstructs their view of God. He says, God's not asking you to find your way back to him. How silly would it be? How bad of a shepherd would he be if he expected the sheep to find its way back to him? No, he's the shepherd and he's coming for the lost one. And listen, he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop until he finds it. That's why we say all the time around here, you are never too far gone. Never too far gone to be found by God. Jesus says, I've come to seek and save the lost and he doesn't stop. And some of you need to hear this. God loves you. You gotta hear this. He loves you. And the single great story of scripture, again, God loves his children and he's come to rescue them. That means you. So of course, of course he's sitting with the tax collectors and sinners. That's where they were. And Jesus is going to go and get his lost sheep. He went to find them. And what I love, I love the picture that Jesus is painting. Because as the tax collectors and sinners heard his voice, just like when a sheep hears the voice of the shepherd calling it, when the tax collectors and sinners heard the voice of Jesus, they were drawn to him. Just like you were created for the love of Christ. You were created to know and walk with God. And when you begin to hear his voice and something in you starts to pull, that is, that's how God formed you, to, to be drawn to him. And if that's today, don't run away from that. Don't push that away. And what does he do when he finds them? Lean in, this is the heart of God. Verse five, when he has found that sheep, He joyfully, joyfully puts it on his shoulders. Coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, says to them, rejoice with me because I've found my lost sheep. He rejoices. He doesn't say, you dumb sheep, right? God's not at the end of the day counting up the flock and going 97, 98, 99. Anybody seen Sarah? Sarah? Sarah has gone off again. She's wandered away. He doesn't roll his eyes and say, let me go back out into the wilderness, see if I can track down Sarah. Sarah, would you get in here? I'm sorry if your name is Sarah. This is totally a random name that pulled I've had, but maybe the Lord is speaking directly to you today, okay? But this, you know, this is not the way God is approaching it. God is not huffing and puffing his way. The shepherd's not huffing and puffing his way through the wilderness to find this sheep that he's frustrated with. No, when he has found it, he joyfully picks it up puts it on his shoulders, what love he carries you home. And he throws a party celebrating you've come home. So to the person who thinks God couldn't love me, I've done bad things, he can't love me. To that person, he demolishes that idea. To the person who wants to run away to Times Square, just try and start over because you can't face the pressures that's waiting on you back home. For some of you today, it needs to be demo day down in your soul. Let the Holy Spirit demolish any whisper from the enemy that says God won't accept you. And let God build something new in you, a powerful hope that says he loves you, he's come to rescue you, and he can bring you home, and he will bring you home joyfully and celebrating. There is a beautiful picture woven here into the gospel, or a picture of the gospel woven in here, that Jesus puts us on his shoulders. You see that? He said, look, He's not saying he approves of your sin. He's saying, listen, you have gone and wandered away from God. And the gospel says that you cannot on your own get back to God. You cannot on your own find forgiveness and earn your way back to God for the sins that you've committed. But Jesus transfers the burden of you getting back to God onto himself when he picks you up and puts you on his shoulders. He puts your sin on his shoulders. He pays for your sin so that he can carry you back to God. And you can have him today. You can have him today. That's the gospel. Jesus transferring our need onto himself. Now he also demolishes the views of what what we would call the worthy ones, the Pharisees, verse seven. I tell you in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people that don't need repentance. The Pharisees are operating under a view that said heaven would rejoice in their good behavior, their obedience to the moral code. And Jesus just demolishes that. He's saying there's more joy in heaven over a sinner repenting and finding salvation in God's gift of forgiveness than there is in people justifying themselves out of their own good works. Because the sinner repenting and coming home is ultimately, it's a celebration of God. And y'all listen, heaven is a celebration of God, who he is, what he has done. And a sinner repenting and finding their only means of salvation in God? That's a celebration of God. Yeah. And it only celebrates us in as much that God has brought us into that celebration. That's what's happening in that first parable. And then here's what happened. Just like a, just like a movie scene that's one of those ones that just goes boom, boom to the next scene. That's what we have. Jesus goes immediately into the very next um, parable, verse 8. What woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Again, And he's like, of course. you know." When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I've found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Here's this woman who has 10 coins, a coin would be about a day's wages. Jesus says, if such a woman were to lose a coin, How would she not put together this like type A all out organized search for it? Because like the sheep, but even more clear, the coin can't find the coin's way back to its owner. The owner has to find it. She has to find it. Some of you are like, what's the big deal? She had nine others, right? Why is she overreacting about couch cushion coin? But the tax collector and sinners are thinking, I am that coin. I am the, the one lost in the couch cushion why would God even bother with me when He has nine others? And then she gets so excited, she calls everybody over for this group hug celebration thing. And you're like, isn't this a bit of an overreaction? Verse 10 says, God is not overreacting, y'all. We are underreacting. Y'all, heaven is an all out celebration, unlike anything we can imagine when a sinner repents. Just because life is not a game, heaven and hell are real. There is a real war being waged for our eternity. And when a sinner repents of their sin and allows God to forgive them and bring them home, that isn't winning a game. That's a prisoner of war being rescued and brought home. Y'all, over the last two weeks um, up at UNC Charlotte, uh, when most college ministries are often gearing down, our college ministry has seen four students come to saving faith. Y'all, that is four lost sheep four lost coins, four lost sheep that have found their shepherd who have come back home to God the Father in just the last two weeks. And I know what heaven is doing. Heaven is celebrating that the lost have found their way home. Can we take a second at both of our locations and celebrate that God has brought the lost sheep back like heaven would? Can we celebrate and say, thank you, God, that he's brought them home? Yes, that's the heart of God. When the lost come home, God celebrates. He loves it. He God loves repentance. Yeah. He loves it. Nothing gives him joy like the lost one coming home to the Father. And if that's you today in here, God is celebrating. Unlike any other way. That's what this is what Jesus tells us twice. That there's this unique joy that it gives the heart of God, and heaven is erupting in celebration as you make your way back to him. And look, now that we've done a flyover of these two parables, I wanna show you, um, I don't know how else to say this, um, but just a couple of lessons in grace that we see in Luke 15. We're gonna see more of them um, next week, but y'all, if you, were, if you find yourself going, man, I need to really dig into this. That's why we're taking two weekends to really understand this. But here's the, here's the first lesson in grace. I want you to, to get, just let it sink in. It, it might take some time. Listen, repentance is the access point to God's grace. Yeah. I used to think this was a chapter about, just about how Jesus loved saving the lost, and it is. It is, but there's even, an, there's another like deep foundational truth. Remember the occasion is a response to the Pharisees who were upset because Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd. And Jesus says the rejoicing in heaven, both times, is caused by sinners repenting, which is a wake-up call to the Pharisees and scribes who think that their morality is what should cause heaven to rejoice. Like, look at me. I've had a really good week. I've had a really good year. Man, I'm not like them. Come on, God. Right? Uh, Look at me. Listen, this is really great news for all of us. This doesn't mean that we should be glib or shallow about our sin, certainly not, but it also means that we don't have to obsess over our sin. Instead, we rejoice in our Savior who paid for our sins on the cross and will see us all the way home down the road of repentance. Y'all, you gotta, do you believe this is what God is like? Is he really the shepherd? Is he really like this woman, rejoicing over a sinner who repents? Because if he is, why? Why? if that's really him, if that's really what causes him to celebrate a sinner repenting and turning back to him, why would we not live in a constant rhythm of repentance? All of us. I'm talking to the one that's never been to church before and came here today. I'm also talking to you who are members of Mercy Church and have been followers of Christ for years and years. Why? Why would we not Yes, we we pursue holiness. I'm not promoting cheap grace. The grace I'm talking about is the grace Jesus is gonna say in chapter 14 that we um, looked at a couple weeks ago, it'll cost you your life. It's the grace Jesus went to the cross to die for. It's not cheap, it's costly grace, but it's available to all. And if Jesus rejoices over sinners repenting, why wouldn't we, who are always falling short, always sinning one way or another, why would we not live as repentant people? God loves repentance. Why would we harden our hearts against him? Listen to me. The moment, the moment you think that you are no longer in need of repentance is the moment you start to wander away from God. It's that very moment. I'm telling you, every single one of us is either a Pharisee grumbling or we are a sinner repenting. So here's my call today. Repent, repent. Whether you think you deserve God's grace or whether you think there's no way you deserve God's grace, what you need is repentance. That's that step. I feel like most of us fall somewhere in the middle between these two groups, and it probably kind of depends on, if we're honest, what week we've had, right? Had a really bad week, and we're like, or maybe it's a bad month or a bad year, I don't know, whatever that amount of time that you're like, there's just no way that, that God could love me. I'm just too messed up. I'm gonna fall back into it. And then there's other times where we're like, man, I am really close to God. Like I gave some money to, to the church's mission and you know, I, I attended for like most of the year or most of the month or whatever else it is. And I, I went and I prayed and I fasted. Like I was hungry for Jesus. I was doing awesome, right? But then what do we do? We drift back into, we kind of start to wander away again from God. We kind of vacillate back and forth between those two. And God says, listen, all of that, all of it needs to be repented of. And let me explain what repentance is. This is crucial, okay? Repentance is turning from sin. It's, It's turning from sin. Here's the sin that I'm in, right? Here's me choosing my way over God's way. It's turning from that, turning from that sin. It's receiving God's forgiveness in Christ, believing that Christ paid the penalty for my sin, receiving forgiveness from the debt that I owed, and then it's committing myself to Christ, all right? It's turning from sin, receiving forgiveness, committing myself to Christ. Here's why I say that. There's a huge difference between repentance and feeling guilty and just saying you won't do it again. Some of y'all have just apologized to yourself and to God at some low moments, but never actually repented of your sin. it's kind of like this. If I say something hurtful to to Courtney and later I see her crying about it, you know, and I'm like, uh, seeing her crying, I see the effect of my sin and I feel guilty. Right? If I just feel guilty, I say, oh, I won't do that again because that made this happen and I feel guilty and bad about that. Um, but then uh, I just kind of go back and I don't change any. Nothing changes about me. I just feel bad in the moment. And it comes back around again and I do it again and again and again, right? Um, that's not repentance. That was me feeling guilty in the moment. And guilt is not gonna change you, all right? Some of y'all are that way towards God. You feel guilty because you sinned. So you say, sorry, God, but then you do it again. Now, am I going to hurt Courtney again, even through repentance? Yes, but here's what's going to happen. In repentance, I'm going to repent, not just to Courtney for what I've done. I'm going to search my soul. I'm going to say, God, search me. Why did I do that which I did? I'm going to receive God's forgiveness. I'm going to ask forgiveness for my wife. And then I'm going to submit myself under the authority of Christ and operate by how he says to live. And that is going to change me. God promises that in the scripture that's gonna to start to change me. And so when I, when I sin again, his spirit's gonna make me a little bit quicker to repent. It's gonna be gonna change me and turn me into an entirely different person. Repentance will bear fruit because you're not just apologizing. You're receiving God's pardon for your sin. And you're putting yourself under new authority, choosing his command for your life, not your own. That's repentance. And maybe that's what you need to actually do today. God's grace awaits you when you do. This is the best place to be because it admits you need help, which means you're ready to receive God's help. And when you get there, ready to receive God's help, when God picks you up, brings you back and calls his angels around and celebrates. It's not dumb sheep, Sarah. No, it's everybody, look, look, my daughter is alive. I've found her. Come celebrate with me. Which leads me right to the next lesson in grace here. God loves and values the one who is lost. The lost one represents tax collector and sinner. Pharisees say these people are ruining society. God is not for them, so we're not for them, so the Pharisees say. And Jesus is confronting them on what they think God is like. He says God loves the lost one. The one who seems so far. The drug dealer who spends his days chasing women, running his operation. God loves him. The prostitute whose very livelihood is made by breaking God's laws, God loves her. Y'all, any of you um, ever go to a big uh, student ministry, like any of you that grew up in church, go to a big weekend where it's like a youth group rally, that kind of thing? When I was doing that internship, I led a group of seventh grade boys that we went to this thing called D-Now, Discipleship Now kind of weekend. Anyways. We're, um, I'll, <laughs> I'll never And I've actually heard some similar stories from some other people who have gone through this. Anyways, um, we're sitting in this thing, and I'm with seventh grade boys, which means I'm pretty much just trying to handle the stench for the whole weekend. Um, and I was just old enough to be like a, an older brother figure to them, but young enough to be able to kind of be patient with them as we went through all the... So most of the session and everything was me going, shh, down the aisle, you know, shh, listen, shh, listen. You know, especially this one kid sitting beside me who's just really sarcastic. I'm like, dude, listen. You know. Well, anyways, this, the speaker gets to this point, and I've used an illustration like this before. He says, hey, to everyone in the room, because the whole purpose of discipleship now, he says, is we're trying to be holy, right? We're trying to be living lives worthy of God, which has some, a good mindset to it. Um, and he says, if I were to put everything that you have done over the past 24 hours up onto the screen, and everything you have thought for the past 24 hours up onto the screen, if I were to put all that up there, who would still want to be your friend? And he's using this to try to say, you know, we need to live lives worthy of God so that people around us will see God and, and trying to convict these students of how they've been living. And he says, who would, the way you've been thinking about your friends, the way you've been talking about your friends behind their backs, who would still want to be your friend? I was getting kind of hot. I was not happy about this. The seventh grader, seventh grade boy sitting beside me, a little sarcastic kid. He goes, R- under his breath, but not under his breath enough because he hadn't learned how to speak under his breath enough at seventh grade. He goes, Jesus. <laughs> I was like, so I just, pounded it. I was like, yes. So I'm talking about amen him a little bit because I was so mad at this guy for the speaker for totally missing the point, right? The seventh grader understood the gospel better than the preacher. Y'all, some of y'all got real baggage, right? Who wants you after all that real baggage that all that stuff, all those bad decisions that you've made when you've lied and hurt the people you've cared about? Maybe it's after your sexual sin. Maybe it's after an abortion, Maybe it's after you failed at work, after you didn't get the grades, after you got busted for drinking. Maybe it's after you just let some people down. I'll tell you who wants you, it's Jesus. Jesus wants you. God loves lost people. He rejoices when they repent of their sin and come to him. He's not rejoicing because he lowered his standards of morality so that they're welcomed in. No, he's not repealing the 10 commandments or anything. He's saying that instead that he loves them because in Christ, they've been able to return to God the Father. And it not only loves you, he forgives you. Amen. If you will follow him, he is able to keep you from going back down that path. And y'all, here's the last thing I'll say. God also loves the Pharisee and the scribe. He loves grace killers. See, the Pharisees and the scribes are the ones that would put Christ on the cross. And as he's on the cross dying, he looks out over them with compassion. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And while they're rebuking him here in this scene, he shows them the problem with their way. There's no joy in heaven over people who don't repent. Repentance, that's the access point to God's grace. But we know, even though they continue to rebuke him, the people who killed the God of grace, he still loves them. He still loves them. So if you in any way believe your good deeds earns you a spot with God, if you believe God owes you love, You've missed grace. You've killed grace, but he loves you. And he can redeem you from that. You're actually just like the tax collector and sinner. You need God's grace as well. And God right here is saying, let me carry you. Here's how you know if that's who you are, in case you're not sure whether you fit into that camp. do you? Let me ask you a question. Do you spend more time repenting of your own sin or pointing out the sin of others? Where do you fall there? Because if you spend your time, more of your time thinking, here's what's wrong with them, instead of repenting of where you have run from God, maybe you're in that camp. It's time for you to not to try and start thinking better, figure out your own way to, to, to be a better person. No, God says he loves repentance. There's celebration in heaven over a sinner who repents. So turn back to him. Repent of your sin, Receive God's forgiveness and submit your life to Christ. And listen, for those of you that are thinking you grew up in an environment filled with a bunch of self-righteous people or you're around people who are self-righteous, be careful. If Jesus loves them, we must love them too. You must love the grace killers because if you don't, you will become one. You must love them as well. Here's I wanna close. I wanna give us a brief time to to pray together, especially in light of... um, of Easter coming next weekend, but just to reflect on, on this passage um, and on what's coming next. So if you would, bow your head, close your eyes. I wanna walk you through um, a time of prayer, okay? Let's take a couple of minutes. If you're not a Christian um, and you're thinking, I don't know that I wanna talk to God, I don't know that he wants to hear from me, listen, maybe all you need to do is, for the moment is just look down at your feet and maybe I can, can talk you towards um, how you would talk with God. But if it's uncomfortable, you don't have to do this. So Christian, here's what I want you to pray. I want you to start by repenting. What is it that you need to to say, God, I recognize? Maybe it's um, believing that other people are worse than you. And maybe it's just saying, God, I see some sin in my life and I wanna turn from that. I wanna again celebrate, receive your forgiveness over me. And again, submit my life to Christ because there's joy there. Allow the Father again to pick you up, put you on his shoulders and carry you Back to himself. Allow him to do that by repenting. Repenting is the access point to God's grace. Now, let me talk to you. This, if you're not a Christian, you've heard a lot. <laughs> you've heard a lot um, about how we are. Uh, even me saying the past couple weeks how we're praying for our one. And in fact, Christians, as you're praying, pray for that one in your life, the one person who's far from God but close to you. And those of you that are not Christians, you're like, man, y'all seem to really want other people to know, to know about Jesus and to, to submit their lives to Jesus. Yes. If if all this is true, if Jesus is who he says he is, that's all we're saying. We're staking our claim on saying, yes, he is. He is who he says he is. And we are sinners who have run from God. And today, you're hearing God loves his children and has come to rescue them. And you can have that grace, that love today. It's just repentance. Turn from your sin. Here's how you pray. If you wanna pray that prayer, here's how you pray it. God, I turn from my sin. I see that I've sinned. I receive your forgiveness, which means Christ paid my, what I owed. He paid my debt on the cross. And then he rose from the grave, defeating death. I believe that and I'm submitting my life to Christ now as you've created me to do. Father, I pray that we would be a a people, a repentant people who are joyful Would the joy of Mercy Church in some small way reflect the joy of heaven when people repent and come back to you. God, we love you, we worship and celebrate your love, and we thank you that you have loved us and come to rescue us. We praise you in Christ's name, amen.